the history is written by the victors and the United States of America has never lost a war that matters. When you lose a war, you, you give up lands, you give up un, unearned fruits, you have a regime change, you, you get disarmed, you have consequences. We have never lost a major war. The Korean War technically isn't over. We pulled out of Vietnam and, and lost some pride, but not a whole lot else. And every other major battle we've been in, we've won. And so it means for 250 years, we've been able to construct a mythology that is not even close to being rooted in reality. A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Today, my guest is Mark Charles. Mark is author of Unsettling Truths, the ongoing dehumanizing legacy of the doctrine of discovery. Turns out Mark is also running for president of the United States. I first learned of Mark when a friend sent me a link to his video that announced his candidacy back in May of 2019. You can find it on YouTube. It's a nine minute piece called Mark Charles for President 2020 Announcement. And I think that some of the sentiments Mark conveys in this video are truly remarkable, very far outside. My experience as Mark's background is Navajo. He lived 11 years on a Navajo reservation, including three years in a Hogan with no water and no electricity. He is a very smart and eloquent person. Mark has devoted a very large part of his life to helping share a message that I think is now being received here as I record this intro in July of 2020. And as an American society, we're having nationwide conversations on race and class and gender and sexual orientation in ways that we hadn't previously, where this is something that he has been working toward some justice and awareness for a long, long time. In this interview, one of the things that we explore is the topic of trauma, trauma individually and trauma as a culture, as a way of understanding what is happening in our society and how we might heal it. We talk more about what he means by that in this interview. You can learn more about Mark in his work at markcharles2020.com. Mark has a number of strong opinions that don't, that aren't necessarily shared, but I think that's part of what's so important is listening to the voices that have been on the periphery, so to speak, or have been marginalized or dismissed or ignored. And in his book, Unsettling Truths, Mark says, 
The United States of America has a white majority that remembers a history of discovery, opportunity, expansion, and exceptionalism. Meanwhile, our communities of color have the lived experiences of stolen lands, broken treaties, slavery, Jim Crow laws, Indian removal, ethnic cleansing, lynchings, boarding schools, segregation, internment camps, mass incarceration, and families separated at our borders. Our country does not have a common memory. So his view and that word in that about a lived experience for someone like me, who's grown up in a suburb on what is historically native land, very comfortable learning a certain version of our history that certainly my life experience does not include a lived experience of that. We're to recognize that there are a number of people in this country that really this has either happened to them or someone in their family line not that long ago, not that many generations ago. And that's what I think is so important about hearing what Mark has to say, even if you don't agree with it, even if you choose to believe a separate version, you know, here's a voice that's speaking for those who maybe have been silenced or haven't had a voice previously. Mark, welcome to the School for Good Thank Living. you. It's good to be with you. If I could take just a moment to introduce myself more traditionally. Please. So, Yak E, Mark Charles Yanis, yeah. In our Navajo culture, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans and we're matrilineal. So our identities come from our mother's mother. Now, my mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage, and that's why I say loosely translated, that means I'm from the wooden shoe people. My second clan, my father's mother, is Tohiglini, which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father, is also Tsinbekedene. Then my fourth clan, my father's father, is Tohichitni, and that's the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. I also want to acknowledge I'm speaking to you today from Washington, D.C., and these are the traditional lands of the Piscataway. So the Piscataway are the native nation that they lived here, they hunted here, they farmed here, they fished here. Their society, their families were here long before Columbus got lost at sea. And these were the people who were removed from these lands so that the District of Columbia, the state of Virginia and Maryland could be established. So I, I like to acknowledge the people whose land I'm on no matter where I go around the country. And I want to honor the Piscataway for being the host people of the land where I'm speaking to you from today. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Mark, for that introduction and that background. And I just want to also, after acknowledging that, add that I'm speaking to listeners today from what is known as Utah, which, Mark, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand this is the traditional land of the Paiute, the Southern Paiute, the Goshute, I believe the Shoshone were here as well, and maybe more that I'm not aware of. Yeah, I'm not aware of exactly who is there. I know the Ute are also Colorado. I don't know if they had lands in Utah or not, but yeah. I, I think those are, I shouldn't say, I don't know. I haven't researched who's actually lands is, is at where you're at in Utah. Yes. To the best of my understanding, that is. And uh, so thank you for that. Yeah. For people who are wondering, there's actually a website I use a lot to look this up. It's native-land.ca. And if you go to that website, it's not the absolute authority, but it, it's a good resource for 
If you enter in your city, your state, your zip code, and it will give you the people whose, what treaties were written in that land, what languages were spoken there, and what nations or tribes were there originally based on the researchers behind this website. Um, it's a fairly good resource. It's, it's accurate probably 90 to 95% of the time in my experience, but it's a great place for people to start their research. It's just native-land.ca. Thank you. Mark, I want to, after that, I want to start with the question that I ask each of my guests, just to help listeners get an understanding also of who they are and how they see the world. And the question is this, what is life about? I would say life is about relationships, relationships between one another, family, friends, neighbors, relationship between us and our environment, the creation, what's around us, the land we live on, the air we breathe, the water we drink, and also our relationship with the divine. And so I, I, would, I would look at all those different relationships as this is what our life is about. And every day that we are alive, we have an opportunity to either enhance or to hurt these relationships. In Navajo culture, we talk about walking in beauty. What does it mean to walk in beauty? How can we have harmony? How can we have health within our relationships? Above us, below us, to the left, to the right. And so kind of a more holistic understanding of, of the way we conduct ourselves. And especially as Navajo people, where our relationships, our family are very important. If you notice when I introduced myself, I gave my four clans. That's very important within Navajo culture because your relationships define who you are. Being able to say, this is who I am. And when I introduce myself on the reservation, then people who are maybe have never met me, but they know the clan system. They know, oh, these are your clans. I know how I am related to those clans, and therefore I know how to relate to you better. And so the importance of relationship is very central to an understanding of being Native and being Navajo. And then also not just the personal relationships, but the relationship with the environment and the relationship with the divine or with creator. Oh, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And speaking of relationship with the divine and with creator, something I read in your book, Unsettling Truths, the ongoing dehumanizing legacy of the doctrine of discovery that really inspired me is a practice I understand you observe every day of waking and praying with the rising sun. Will, yes. you, will you talk with me about that? What, why do you do it? How do you do it? What's the benefit of it? Yeah, I, I don't do it. I did it a daily discipline when I lived on the reservation. Where I live now, where it's harder to see the horizon and there's more yeah. clouds and there's less sunset or sunrises that you can actually see, I don't do it near as frequently as I would like. I found other ways to connect myself to my environment. But living on the reservation where our people for, again, throughout our, our history have risen every morning and ran towards the east and greeted the sunrise with our prayers. And when I moved to the reservation, I wanted to have a deeper understanding of my own culture, my own culture, my own heritage. And so I decided I made the intentional decision to make that practice one of my spiritual disciplines. And so we lived there for 11 years and for 11 years, every morning, you know, probably five, six mornings a week, I would wake up, I would go outside, I would, I would turn towards the east and I would pray, I would sing, I would stand. Sometimes I would scoop down and just touch the dirt and hold the dirt in my hand. And that's actually important. I now live in a place in Washington, D.C., where it's not easy just to stoop down and pick up dirt 
everything's paved, everything's cemented, everything's, you know, manicured. And so the actual ability to touch dirt is not very, not as abundant as it used to be when I lived on the reservation. And so I would stand out each morning and then I would watch the sunrise come up and I would pray during that time. And one of the things I noticed, and I wrote about this in the book, is when you're traveling or you're religious and you watch the sunrise Easter morning or you, you see it during a morning, an early flight you have, it's always beautiful. It's breathtaking. You know, if you're aware, you'll stop and take a picture or pause for a moment. But when you wake up every morning and day after day, you stand outside and you watch the sunrise and day after day turns into week after week and week after week turns into month after month and month after month turns into year after year. And you see the seasons change, you see the birds migrating, you see the animals coming and going, you see the flowers blooming, you see the leaves falling, you see the snow and the, the rain and the, the winds, and you see the world happening around you. And you realize that not only is, is this beautiful and is it breathtaking, and it's a privilege not only to watch it, but to stand in the midst of it and have it happen around you, you begin to understand how little control you have. You can't make the sunrise faster. You can't make things change. You can't change the order of the seasons. It happens. And you're, if you're aware, you're honored and privileged to participate in it, to be a part of it. But even if you're not there, it's still going to take place. It's still going to, it's still going to move on. And it's a reminder of how little control we actually have. And especially as an American and within Western culture, where so much of the, the culture is about being in control, you know, where we are taught that we can control these things through our technology, through our resources, through our money, through our insurance policies. We can at least plan for things, control things. This is how the, even the Western perception of time works, where you make a schedule. And I've done a lot of research on time perception and it's not that one's good or one's bad. Western time perception is linear. Native time perception is more circular, different strengths, different weaknesses. One of the challenges with the Western time perception is it gives you the, the false understanding that you can control something. In the more circular perception of time, you, you very much learn how to roll with things and acknowledge you're not in control. And so watching the sunrise is a great way for me to remember, ultimately, I'm not in control. And within Western culture, that's a panicked feeling. But once you really begin to acknowledge it, it actually becomes very soothing. So much of our anxiety, especially within Western culture, comes from trying to control things we can't control. And once you're able to acknowledge, I, I can't control even some of these most basic things, whether it's the order of the seasons or the rising of the sun, it allows you actually to live with a greater sense of peace and with a, a deeper sense of calm. And so even this has been important, even in the midst of this pandemic, you know, as this pandemic has risen over the past few months and everyone copes with it different. The way most Western Americans coped with the pandemic, especially initially, is they treated it as a, a, a brief disruption to the schedule. So we'll be home for a few weeks, we'll be home for a few months, then we'll get back to normal, everything's gonna go. That's how we coped with it. By That's how most people coped with it. By, yeah, this is just a blip in the schedule. And once it's over, we'll be back in control and we can go again. Well, the moment the pandemic started hitting, I remember I returned from my last trip in early March. 
And literally the next week, the nation began shutting down and schools began closing. The economy started crashing. And as schools were closing, you know, there was a lot of talk about, well, this is, again, a short blip. And I told my, my children when they closed down, I said, this is a pandemic and there's no vaccine for 12 to 18 months. I said, don't plan on going back to school in a few weeks. Don't even plan on going back to school in the fall. You know, like that, that this is a pandemic. It's happening globally. There's no vaccine. The only way we can control it is to social distance and to, and to maintain public spacing. And so again, giving up that sense of control and saying, okay, yeah, we're, we're not going to try and control it or treat this as a blip, but this is just a reality. And this is probably a reality we're going to have for not just a few months, but maybe even a year to a year and a half. Thank you for sharing that. Knowing that you're now in a place, in, you know, there in Washington, D.C., where that's not as easily available, you know, where the ground is covered over and, and where the skyline isn't as visible. What have you found is successful to help you retain that awareness of, you know, your place in things, the fact that you're not in control, yeah. but still can, can, can remain connected with, with creator or the divine? Yeah. So one of the things I've started doing, and I didn't know this before I moved here, but DC actually has a higher amount of rainfall than Oregon or Washington. We get more rain than Portland and Seattle here in DC. I didn't, I didn't know that either. Nobody knows that. The, well, not nobody, but most people know that. The reason is because everyone in Seattle and Portland complain about the rain because they have these rainy seasons where you'll go several months without seeing the sun. In DC, we have probably between eight and 12 rainy days a month every month. And so we get it consistently throughout the year. So you never go this long stretch of never seeing the sun. Also, you never go these long stretches without seeing the rain. And so the numbers add up without you ever kind of going through this long process of, oh, I've, it's been raining for three weeks now and I haven't seen the sun. No, we get, again, maybe eight to 12 days of rain a year. And so because of that, it's always green here. I mean, winter, obviously, but it's, you know, so there's always flowers blooming. There's always trees blossoming. Grass is, you know, you don't even have to water your grass much here. And so things are always green. Things are always blooming. And so one of the things I've done, and especially during the pandemic, is, you know, my, my wife and I and our family, we will frequently go out and just walk through the neighborhood around the city. I've allowed myself to be taken by the beauty of flowers. And I will stop myself on a walk, I'll pull out my camera and I'll, I'll notice the flowers. I'll take pictures of them. I'll post them. And for me, flowers now, because again, it's harder to see the, the horizon to watch the sunrise. It's harder to even have consistent, clear days where you can actually watch the sunrise. But every day you can find something blooming, you know, some sort of flower or, or some sort of life. And so I've actually I've allowed myself to be taken by that and to pause and, and look at those things. And to that has become my connection to creation, even in the midst of this urban jungle where I can't see the sunrise. Yeah. So flowers for me have now become my new, my new reminder of I'm not in control and there is a system in place bigger and that I'm not, I'm not even in charge of making it happen. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Let's talk about your book, Unsettling Truths. I know I mentioned the title here, but Unsettling Truths, The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery. 
who did you write this book for? Why did you write it? And how did you want the world to be different as a result of it? I grew up in a border town to the Navajo Nation, actually on a mission compound that for 80 years operated as a boarding school, which the goal of the school was to commit cultural genocide against Native peoples and forcibly assimilate us to Western European culture. My grandparents were translators for the missionaries at, at that mission compound. And so we, I grew up as a Christian, but having very little value for my Navajo culture because of the, of the fact that the whole notion of, of Christianity, the goal was to kill the Indian to save the man. This is the whole notion of the boarding school. So you have to give up your pagan practices and embrace Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. And so I, I grew up, you know, without a high value for my native culture. And after I left Gallup, New Mexico, where I grew up, and I went to school at UCLA, and then I began working and worked in San Francisco, worked in LA, worked in Albuquerque, worked back in Gallup, eventually moved to Denver and began engaging more with my Navajo identity. I, I satisfied my, my foreign language requirement in college by studying Navajo. I created several independent studies throughout my college career, studying parts about Navajo culture, our time perception. You know, I was trying to understand and learn more about these things I didn't I wasn't taught growing up and then began working back around our reservation, even on our reservation. And then eventually ended up pastoring a church in Denver called the Christian Indian Center. At that church, I was engaged in the dialogue with our congregation of what does it mean to be native and be Christian? There was really a, a large group of indigenous Christians from all over the world who were meeting together at that time. It was a group called the World Christian Gathering on the World Christian Gathering on Indigenous Peoples. And every year, every other year, we met in a different nation hosted by a different Indigenous group. And we talked about how people were decolonizing their faith. These are all people who consider themselves Christians. They follow the teachings of Jesus, but they were throwing out all of the Western imperialism that came with that religion and looking at it through a Native worldview or through an Indigenous worldview. And so hearing stories and watching this of people literally trying to decolonize their faith and being a part of those conversations for a number of years. And that led my wife and I to make the decision to move back to the Navajo Nation. And we decided if we were really going to engage this conversation and even try to lead within it, because I'd grown up in a border town in a mission compound, because I didn't grow up speaking my language or experiencing my culture firsthand, we really had to be back on the Navajo Nation. And so we moved back there in early 2000s, 2002, 2003, I think. And we lived there for a total of 11 years. For three of those years, the first three years, we lived in a very remote section of our reservation. We were six miles off nearest paved road on a dirt road, no running water, no electricity. Lived in a one-room Hogan, traditional Hogan, dirt floor, log walls, hole in the ceiling, you know, it just, it was a more traditional, some modern amenities, but again, no running water, no electricity. And we moved there knowing we were going to that environment, knowing we'd have to use an outhouse and, and haul our water and cook over a camp stove and, and live by candlelight. We knew we were going to be off the grid. You had children as well, right? Our son was, we had our son at that point. So he was, he was, I think two or three years old when we moved there. Wow. So we, we prepared to live off the grid, but when we got there, 
the thing that completely took us by surprise was how intensely marginalized and disenfranchised we felt. It literally felt like we dropped off the face of the earth. You know, I had worked for large corporations. I had attended a large school. My wife had grown up in Southern California. We had lived in major cities around the country. And we moved there and it felt like we dropped off the face of the earth. And one of the things we witnessed and realized, observed very quickly, is that primarily the only group of non-natives we ever interacted with on the reservation were people who come to take our picture, are people who came to give us charity. Almost no one came to build relationships, to get to, to, get to know us. Around the same time, I'm witnessing and observing and even experiencing some of the historical trauma of my community from boarding schools, from Indian removal. As well as I'm learning more of the history, there was a book written by a Native author named Stephen Newcomb, who wrote one of the premier books on the Doctrine of Discovery called Pagans in the Promised Land. And I began becoming more aware during those years about the Doctrine of Discovery and what it was, and understanding more of the, the oppressive history of both the church and the nation. And when I was there, I was experiencing all of this. And I was finding it was making me very angry and incredibly insecure. I had never felt, not never, but I, I did not struggle with kind of a racial insecurity. I did not feel like I was treated as less than because I was Native. I did not feel like I was missing opportunities because I was Native. If you would have asked me about the history, I said, well, yeah, the history was bad, but things have definitely gotten better over the years and now things are, are pretty good. That would have been what I would have said up through the late 1990s, early 2000s. But then I, as I studied the history more and witnessed and experienced the marginalization and all these things, I began growing very insecure and getting very angry. And I was trying to, like I saw this happening around me and I was trying to process it through with my friends, many of who were not native. And so because they were coming to the reservation, we were talking about it on the phone, we were emailing and we were trying to, I was trying to, figure this out. And whenever we start talking about it, I could feel the emotions rising up in me. And if we talked about it too long, I'd have to hang up the phone so I wouldn't start screaming at my friend. So I learned to try to kind of disconnect emotionally, talk about it like I read it in the newspaper. So I wasn't emotionally invested in it so I could stay in the dialogue longer. But then the longer I was in the dialogue, the more the defenses of my friends rose up. It wasn't my family who did that to your people. It wasn't our neighborhood, you know, blah, blah, blah. And soon they would hang up the phone. So I was trying to figure out how to talk about this in a way that was honest and accurate, but also in a way that enhanced the dialogue and didn't discourage it or squelch it. And one day I was writing a letter to my friends. This was like the 10th time trying to get them to understand how I felt and what I was experiencing. And in my letter, I said something to the effect of being native and living on an Indian reservation. It feels like our native communities is this old grandmother who has a very large and a very beautiful house. And years ago, some people came into our house and they locked us upstairs in the bedroom. Today, this house is full of people. They're sitting on our furniture. They're eating our food. They're having a party inside our house. Now, they've since come upstairs and they've unlocked the door to our bedroom, but it's much later and we're tired, we're old, we're weak, we're sick, so we can't or we don't come out. But what hurts us the most, what causes us the most pain is that virtually nobody comes up to this bedroom, speaks out with the grandmother sits down next to her on the bed, takes her hand, and just simply says, thank you. Thank you for letting us be in your house. I wrote that. I'm like, that's it. That's what I'm feeling. 
I started sharing that with people in my community. And a number of people said to me, you know, I've lived here for a long time, even all my life. It's been a struggle to articulate how it feels and you're hitting the nail on the head. I would share that with non-natives off the reservation and they would come back instead of getting defensive and being angry, they would come back and say, what does it mean to say thank you? How does my family, my community, my city, my state, my nation express gratitude to the host people of the land? See, now we're having a very different dialogue. Now, instead of having this very simplistic binary dialogue of victor versus, victim versus oppressor, now we're having what I think is the root of the problem, which is this discussion on these reversal of roles. Where if you're honest, we have a nation of over 300 million undocumented immigrants, people who've never asked for nor have they been given permission to be here, and they act like they own the place. Meanwhile, we have 6 million indigenous peoples being treated like unwanted guests in someone else's house. And we have to find a way to have this conversation. I need the nation. I want the nation to understand in some very real and practical ways they are guests. And I want our indigenous people to understand in some very real and practical ways we are the hosts. And I think if we step more fully into those roles, we will be able to have a better life here. There's a native elder. His name is George Erasmus. He's from the Diné people in Canada. And he says where common memory is lacking, where people do not share in the same past, there can be no real community. If you want to build community, you have to start by creating a common memory. I love that idea because I think it gets to the heart of our nation's problem with race, which is we don't have a common memory. We have a white majority that remembers this mythological history of discovery and expansion. We start our book by saying you cannot discover lands already inhabited. You can steal lands, you can colonize them, you can conquer them. You cannot discover them unless you dehumanize the people already living there. So the fact that we have history books and monuments and statues honoring Columbus as the discoverer of America reveals the bias, which is that native peoples, specifically and people of color generally are not human. And so we have this white majority that remembers this mythological history of discovery and expansion, opportunity and exceptionalism. And we have communities of color, specifically indigenous and black communities, also other marginalized communities of color and women and other groups like LGBTQ that have the lived history of stolen lands and broken treaties, of slavery and Jim Crow laws, of boarding schools and Indian massacres, of internment camps and segregation and families being ripped apart at our borders. And there's no common memory. And this helps explain why there has never been healthy community across racial lines in the history of this country. And so the book was not about pointing fingers and primarily trying to address blame. It was about how do we create this common memory, being able to call the history out for what it is, but doing it in a way that is seeking to create this common memory so that we can have healthier community. And that, that's been my goal ever since I moved back to the Navajo Nation. And that metaphor was one of the first tools I've ever used that was effective to draw people into the conversation. And the book was kind of the outgrowth of that. It was the fruit of that, of taking 15 years of my life to understand how do I use this sort of idea to generate dialogue on a much broader scale. And that even is one of the reasons I'm running for president is I'm working to try and 
create this common memory, deal with our history, address the injustice, but does it in a way that promotes health rather than just seeks to oppress or reverse roles. Well, well thank you for sharing that, that background, both you know, in this conversation and, and also in this book. I finished reading it yesterday. I've been reading it for the last few weeks and allowing myself to, to read it slowly and attempt to digest it. I learned a lot from it and from your campaign announcement video, your message that we the people are the three most under, misunderstood words in, a, in U.S. history, yeah. right? That we the people has never meant all the people, as you're saying now and, and, and as you're talking about where we're living these parallel narratives. You know, they're very different, they're separate, and in some ways they haven't intersected. And, and one thing you say is that we need a national conversation on race, gender, and class. And of course, you, you've been saying that for years. And with the recent events after the George Floyd death, or some people say the George Floyd murder, so much of this depends on where you stand, right? Is that national conversation happening now? Oh, and, and by the way, before I finish asking, oh, okay, okay, so you've answered. But one of the things that I really appreciate about the way you're, you're framing this is you're inviting people into a dialogue. It's not just making people wrong. Here's the facts. You guys, you know, you and us and this and that. But you say, so in response to that question already about a national conversation on race, gender, and class, you say it's not happening yet. What, what would it look like and what would have to happen for it to happen? What does that conversation look like? How do we have it? So one of the challenges, and we, we've tried to have it at many different levels, and we've engaged it in different arenas. One of the challenges we face as a nation is that we address these problems in silos. And so we deal with gender equity and we deal with the enslavement of African people and we deal with the stealing of lands from native peoples. And each group is trying to engage their own dialogue in these things and they're trying to address different, you know, so we have an amendment, you know, that are laws that now um, make lynching illegal. And again, why do we need a law like that? Well, because why wouldn't just a murder law apply? Well, because black people weren't considered human. So we need a separate law to actually make the killing of black people illegal because the murder law doesn't work for that. You know, and so the same thing, we, we need a separate amendment for women. You know, the ERA just got ratified by the 38th state in January, but because five other states have pulled the ratification of it and because it was past the, the sunset date on what Congress allowed for ratification, we just haven't even decided in 2020 that we want to treat women as equal under the Constitution. And so we've addressed these things in silos. And what I'm trying to say is there's a root to all of these things, which is what's known as this doctrine of discovery. And the doctrine of discovery, what it is used for is it, it sets up, it, it establishes this belief, this lie of supremacy for technically, if you want to be brutally honest, it's for white landowning heterosexual Christian males. That's like the, if there's any person who has every opportunity to be successful in the United States and has everything slicked in their favor, it's white landowning heterosexual Christian males. And everyone else is disenfranchised at some level from that group, depending on how many pieces of intersection they have. And so again, this is why we have, we need, we, so we're addressing it in silos. We're passing, are trying to pass amendments that say women are equal. We're trying to pass amendments that say, you know, we have this one amendment that 
most people thought abolish slavery. It doesn't actually abolish it. It simply institutionalized white supremacy and redefined slavery and constitutionally protects it in the criminal justice system, which was Abraham Lincoln's goal from the beginning. And it doesn't actually free, the, it doesn't deal with the problem. And the problem is, is this doctrine of discovery that has been what's behind the discovery of America. It's been behind the enslavement of African people. It's been behind the exploitation and profit values of our nation. It's why we, the Declaration of Independence refers to natives as savages, 30 lines after says all men are created equal. It's why the constitution doesn't, it specifically excludes natives. It counts Africans as three-fifths. It never mentions women. You know, there's a reason, there's a root for all of this, and it's this doctrine of discovery. And so I'm working to try and engage this conversation, not in silos, but much more holistically. And so right now, most of the conversations we're having are siloed conversations. They're not dealing with the root of the problem. So three of the examples, you know, when I talk about we need a national dialogue on race, gender, and class, I say it's on par with what they call truth and reconciliation commissions that happened in South Africa, in Rwanda, and in Canada. All of those nations had large national truth and reconciliation commissions. Now, I wouldn't call ours truth and reconciliation because, again, reconciliation implies there was a harmony previously, which, if you understand race in America, never existed. So you can't discover lands already inhabited. The first interaction was based on the dehumanization of native peoples. So that's not harmony. And so let's stop pretending the history is something it wasn't. Let's call it for what it is. Let's use the term racial conciliation. If harmony is about our reconciliation is about restoring a previous harmony, conciliation is just about mediating a dispute. So one perpetuates the myth. The second gives us a more honest starting point. And then if we look at the other three national TRCs that happened, and I'm most familiar with the one in South Africa and the one in Canada, they didn't go far enough. So in, in, in South Africa, yes, they had this large TRC. They wrote a new constitution. This was after you know apartheid kind of fell apart. And they wrote a new constitution. But they didn't address the underlying systemic economic issues. And so it's now been 25 years plus since that TRC happened. And a lot of people, especially people from the margins, people of color in South Africa are saying, what's changed? Nothing's any different. And it's because it never addressed the underlying systemic economic problems. In Canada, they had this TRC around boarding schools, which were similar to our, well, they call them residential schools. It's our boarding schools. It's cultural genocide, abuse, neglect, happen in these schools where they're trying to kill the Indian to save the man. And so they had a TRC around residential schools, which touched on the doctrine of discovery, but didn't focus on it. And so again, it dealt with the injustice of the, of the residential schools. It didn't deal with the underlying problem, which was this doctrine of discovery, which ultimately led to the land titles and treaties and how natives were treated in their own lands. And so it didn't go deep enough. And so a lot of, especially indigenous peoples in Canada are saying, well, that was a nice conversation, but we, we didn't go deep enough. You know, if you, have, if you have a house that has foundational level problems and you all agree that you're going to re-carpet the house and you're going to repaint the walls and you're going to put new caulking around your windows, that's, well, that's great. But if your, your walls are cracked, your floors are creaky, and your windows are crooked because you have a bad foundation, 
if you don't address the foundation, you're not going to fix the problem. And so that's what Canada is finding. They didn't address the foundation. And so this is where one of the challenges in my, my, both my book and the TEDx talk address this, where in 1823, so not only does the doctrine of discovery influence the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, but in 1823, John Marshall uses it as the legal cornerstone for land titles. Land titles are now based on this doctrine of discovery and this legal understanding that natives are savages and are only occupants of the land. And Europeans have the right of discovery to the land, so they have the fee title to it. So they're the true landowners. 1823, Johnson versus McIntosh is when it's first established as the legal precedent for land titles. And it gets referenced by name by the Supreme Court in 1954, 1985, and most recently in 2005. And my TEDx talk goes into depth into the 2005 Supreme Court opinion, which I identify and I think I effectively prove is probably one of the most white supremacist opinions written in my lifetime that essentially says the the United Indian Nation cannot reclaim sovereignty over their lands because white people have converted it from wilderness back into, civil, or into civilization, making the same argument that John Marshall made, which says if natives are savages and if we leave them in control of their land, the land will remain a wilderness. I mean, it uses the same argument, just doesn't use the word savage, but it heavily implies it. And it concludes that based on um, federal case law, which again, the first footnote of the case is the doctrine of discovery. And all of these precedents, the, the United Indian Nation cannot rekindle embers of sovereignty that have long ago grown cold. That one of the most white supremacist opinions written in my lifetime. And it was written by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who, again, apparently, I mean, she is the, right, she's the, the liberal lion on the left who's this voice of dissent against this increasingly conservative Supreme Court. And even she legally concludes that we need to keep this doctrine of discovery in place. Why? Because when your land titles are dependent upon one group of people being dehumanized, white supremacy becomes a bipartisan value. And so this is where the challenge becomes very, very difficult because it's not just institutionalized white supremacy and constitutionally protecting slavery and, and doing these things that can change and maybe even be rectified in some senses, but because land titles are based on natives being legally classified as savages and prosperity in the US, especially for your average American is based on home ownership. This now makes it an issue that very few people have an interest in changing because it could literally call into question the house you're living in. And so, this is one of the reasons why I, I was very quick to say, no, we have not had this conversation. Yes, we've had the conversation about how women are excluded. Yes, we're having the conversation about how black lives don't matter and how we need to deal with our history of enslavement, which is absolutely correct. We have never had the conversation about land titles. And as recently in two, as 2005, one of the most liberal progressive judges on our Supreme Court concluded she wrote the opinion that we have to keep that system in place. So Mark, if this, if we had the conversation, if we managed to have it as a nation and just thinking in maybe best case scenarios, how does it play out? Like how do, what has to happen for us to have it as a matter of practice? How does it occur? I mean, having any single conversation with 300 plus million people is challenging, right? So how do we have it? 
And what, what's the best case, you know, as it unfolds, what does it look like? So this is, this is where I am merely, I am advocating that we have to have this dialogue and I'm, I'm, I'm basing it on the fact that most Americans don't know their own history. You know, two of the hardest chapters to both write and read in our book are the two chapters on Abraham Lincoln, because in those chapters, we demonstrate how not only was Abraham Lincoln a blatant white supremacist who had no value for black lives and whose goal was to institutionalize white supremacy and constitutionally protect slavery, but we demonstrate how he was one of the most genocidal presidents in the history of our nation. And, you know, our nation right now is having this discussion on Confederate flags and Confederate generals and even on Columbus. And these are things that a larger number of Americans can agree on that, yes, these things should go. Andrew Jackson was a bad president. Columbus was, you know, a misguided explorer. He was very harmful to people. The Confederate flag should be taken down. These are all things that not all Americans, but more Americans can agree, yeah, those are blemishes on our past that we should not celebrate. But Abraham Lincoln is one of the heroes, a bipartisan hero of America. And, and so this is where, you know, if we really want to deal with institutionalized white supremacy, which is the conversation we're trying to have right now, we can't just address the low-hanging fruit like Andrew Jackson and General Lee and the Confederate flag. We have to address the things we all cherish, such as Abraham Lincoln and the 4th of July, which is about celebrating a document that refers to natives as savages. And so, and if we can't address those things, then we're not truly having the conversation. One of the, one of the challenges I, I say to people and you can see this most clearly in a crisis that exists within Indian country. It's called missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, where, as I said earlier, everyone has a buy-in. You know, you have the white landowning male, Christian male. And so depending on how many ways you line up with that, that gives you access into some of that, I don't want to call it privilege, but some of that oppression, fruits of that oppression. You know, and so I'm not, I'm not white, but I am male and I am a Christian. So I have some levels of access into that oppressive system to benefit from it. You know, a, a white woman has, she's, she's not a man, but she is white. So she can benefit some there. Towards the more bottom is we have women of color, African-American women, especially. They're not white. They're not male. They could be Christian. And if they work and save and get lucky, they could become landowners. The group that has no access into that, that group are indigenous women living on reservations. They're not white. They're not male. If they live on the reservation, there's a good chance they're traditional, so they're not Christian. Because they live on the reservation, those lands are held in trust for us by the federal government, so they can't own land. So they have no access point into that system. Again, it's an oppressive system and you, we shouldn't want access into that. But this is why they are one of the most forgotten groups. And so I'm wearing my CA, my, my Navajo bun, tied in red yarn. And one of the reasons I'm doing that is there's a crisis in Indian country known as missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, where literally hundreds, thousands of indigenous women have been reported missing or murdered, reported murdered by their families to law enforcement. And not only have their cases not been closed, but in many instances, they've never been opened. 
oftentimes their families are literally told that they are responsible for going out and looking for them themselves. Our agencies, government, local, state, even federal, are not doing anything to help find these women. It's a crisis in Indian country. And at the Franklin Mayor Native American Forum last August, I was there with Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Julian Castro, a lot of the, a lot of the um, major Kamala Harris were at this forum. I think there were 10 Democrats, myself, and maybe one Republican there. And they asked questions about missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. And as most of the candidates learned about this crisis, they all responded and said, well, we need to have a new law. We would propose this policy to address this very vulnerable demographic. Well, my response to this is when your Declaration of Independence calls Native savages and your constitution never mentions women, perhaps you shouldn't be surprised when your indigenous women go missing or get murdered and society doesn't care. A new law isn't going to fix this problem because the basis of our laws is what excludes this demographic. And so if we want to fix the problem of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, we have to do something about our Declaration of Independence, which is our value statements as a nation, and something about our constitution, which is our basis of law. And neither party is interested in addressing those foundational level flaws. You know, Mark, that makes a lot that makes a lot of sense to me. And as I, you know, as I hear you talk about this now, two things that come up for me. One is this sense for me that this doesn't touch many people personally or clearly the demographic you know in power this white like you said the white heterosexual male christian male if it did right then they'd probably do something about it but where it doesn't they're not as motivated to because they're not the ones feeling the pain of missing a daughter or a loved one but the other part of it is beyond that. So say that whatever we might say, their hearts were softened or they were conscious or, you know, they just felt moved to do something about it. That my sense from reading your book, and I wouldn't have had this awareness prior to that, is that one of the things that might keep them stuck, you know, that might prevent them from taking action is the fact that there is so much trauma that has been experienced, you know, both by communities of color, indigenous people and by whites. Yeah. And, and that's not in, that's not necessarily obvious, right? So I, I hear what you're saying. And personally, I agree with you about if the foundation is, is flawed, if the foundation has cracks in it, no surprise that, you know, the way the machine operates is the way the machine operates. So I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. And I think there's also this issue of trauma that's worth understanding, addressing, resolving as best we can. And that's a, probably a generations long effort as well. If people were even aware of it or, or motivated to do something about it, but maybe, maybe it would benefit the listener. And I believe it would benefit me personally to hear you talk a little bit more also about the topic of trauma. Yeah. So this is when I began lecturing on the doctrine of discovery and I've been laying out the history of the blatant genocide and it's all detailed in the book, blatant genocide, celebrated genocide, celebrated enslavement, celebrated white supremacy. As we lay out that history, and as I was talking about that and lecturing that around the country, after my lectures, I would have two lines in front of me of people. One line was a group of white people who they came up and their faces were literally like a sheet, like they had just seen a ghost. And they were overwhelmed and they would, they would say something to the effect of, I had no idea the history was that bad. How do I fix it? And then I would have a group of people of color Natives, African-Americans, and they were, giddy's too strong of a word, but they were excited. 
because now they had dates, they had names, they had policies, they had historical facts demonstrating, even proving what they have always been told was, was not accurate. What, and so they were like, you, I didn't know the names, I didn't know the dates, but I knew the history was that bad. And now I have some, some tools to help demonstrate that. And those two lines troubled me. I lived on the reservation and in our book, I go into an accident I had as, as a high schooler where I was in a car accident and I've dealt with trauma in some very real ways. And as I was watching, especially this group of white people in one of the lines, I saw a lot of the same symptoms or behavior that I exhibited when I was dealing with the trauma of my car accident. And so I began looking at that and I, I've done some research on trauma for my own benefit, but also I knew about historical trauma. And so when you look at trauma, the, the one of the more basic levels of trauma is called PTSD. It's post-traumatic stress or post-traumatic stress disorder. It's an individual diagnosis for someone who's experienced a single horrifying event. So you get assaulted, you can have PTSD. You're in a car accident, you can have PTSD. You're in a fight or a battle, you can have PTSD. It affects you mentally, physically, emotionally, relationally. It's kind of this all-encompassing condition, but it comes, it affects a single person, usually from a single event. Now, there's another trauma known as complex PTSD. And complex PTSD, it still is an individual diagnosis, but it doesn't come from a single event. It comes from a series of events that repeatedly traumatize a person. So if you can get PTSD from being assaulted, you can get complex PTSD from living in an abusive relationship. If you can get PTSD from being in a battle, you can get complex PTSD from living in a war zone. And it's been demonstrated, it's not fully understood, but psychiatrists have seen symptoms of complex PTSD in the children and grandchildren of people who suffered from the trauma. So it gets passed down generationally, even though it's not fully understood how that happens, but they see it in victims and children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors, for example. And so then there's a third trauma known as historical trauma. Now, historical trauma is not an individual diagnosis. It's how psychologists understand the dissatisfaction in a broad community. And they've observed it first in native communities after boarding schools and removal. You can also see symptoms of it in African-American communities after slavery and Jim Crow and segregation. You can see it in, in Jewish communities after the Holocaust. You can see it in Japanese-American communities after the internment camps. And so there's an understanding now, this psychological understanding of this historical trauma. And I refer to it as a multi-generational communal manifestation of a complex PTSD. So if you have PTSD or complex PTSD at an individual level, you have historical trauma when the whole community goes through that trauma together. And so understanding that, it helps me to be able to prepare for my audiences, especially people of color, because these traumas exist within our community. So if I want to go into a native community and talk about this history, and I don't understand the the PTSD and the complex PTSD of our boarding school survivors are the historical trauma of the entire community. I'm going to say something, it's going to trigger a response, and I'm going to lose the ability to, to do anything healthy. And so understanding this trauma helps me prepare and helps, you know, to make sure that we can stay on track with the work we're trying to do. Now, 
The challenge was, is in most racial dialogues, it's not people of color that are disrupting it, it's white people. And I actually learned that it was about back then, before I had understood how trauma was impacting this, that during one of my lectures, eventually a, a white person would become so bothered that they would stand up and physically disrupt my lecture. And I, I again, just guessed one half of 1%. So it didn't happen every lecture. I do some speaking and I just, I'm familiar with the pre, you know, the preparation routine and things like this. I wonder if this had you ever, you know, standing there in the front of the room before you're introduced, kind of going, is it going to be her? <laughs> Will it be him? <laughs> well, again, so one half of 1%. And what I noticed as it happened repeatedly is it was typically white Christian military veterans. Hmm. These were the people, our, our law enforcement officers, these were the people that were, that were going to be so bothered by what I said that they would actually stand up and verbally disrupt the meeting, call me a liar, point out something they didn't believe, one half of 1%. How, how so, did you deal with it when that happens? Well, I, I, again, I'm trying to figure out, well, you know, one of, my, one of the ways I, I do public speaking is, I understand my, my view on public speaking, it's all communications persuasion. And I want to know who my audience is and speak out of the expertise I have on my topic. And so as I, I understood my topic well, and I knew my argument, well, but I'm like, there's something about my audience I don't get. And so when I saw over time after time after time again, what demographic it was that was standing up and disrupting my lectures, I began trying to think through what's causing this. And again, when I would have these lines come up after I would speak, again, it was all white people who were like, their faces were like a sheet and it was the white landowning men, usually military veterans who were the most adamant opposed to what I was saying. And I was realizing I was seeing trauma in their eyes. Like I was seeing symptoms of what I had experienced after my car accident in high school. And so, but I'm trying to put it, piece it together. It didn't make sense that it was historical trauma and I couldn't, I didn't have language to understand it. And I talked with some of my colleagues and friends who were psychiatrists and I was like, am I, am I making something up here? You know, like, what do I see? And I, the feedback I got was, no, you're, you're observing something, but I don't have any category for what it is. And then I found a book. It was by Rachel McNair. She's a psychologist and she wrote a book called PITS, P-I-T-S. It stands for Perpetration Induced Traumatic Stress. And she identifies this trauma that she refers also to as the psychology of killing. And so she identifies that PITS is like PTSD in every way, except if, pits, if PTSD afflicts the, the victim of a horrifying event, PITS would afflict the perpetrator, the person who caused it. I found that book and I, I got an understanding of what she was talking about and suddenly I had the missing piece. And I could now construct a theory where I said, if if historical trauma is a multi-generational communal manifestation of a complex PTSD, and that afflicts our communities of color, it would make sense to me that PITS would also have a complex multi-generational communal manifestation. That would be the trauma that I'm observing as afflicting white Americans. It's not that they're victims of trauma. This is a perpetration-induced traumatic stress. This doesn't excuse their behavior, nor does it justify it, but it helps me to understand their responses when I try to talk about it. And so it let me identify that 
I am interacting, when I interact and speak to white Americans, that they are another group of traumatized people. Now, again, they're not victims of trauma. This doesn't justify their behavior, doesn't excuse it, but it helps me understand why they are so unwilling to wrestle with it. And this is a challenge right now. You know, there's a lot of people trying to figure this out. Um, one of the top selling books at this moment during this pandemic, not the pandemic, during since the, the racial tension has risen to the heights of where it is. One of the top selling books on Amazon right now is by Robin D'Angelo, who wrote a book called White Fragility. Now, I've, I've, I've looked at her argument. I've read some of her stuff. and she definitely makes some very good insights into what she identifies as white fragility. The challenge I, I have with her book, it's not, it's not the observations she's making, it's not even the, the insight she has, but it's the whole paradigm of fragility. So when you treat something as fragile, you have one of two choices, right? If I'm gonna help you move, and you, I, I get to your house and you have a box marked fragile. I have one of two choices. I can pick it up very gently and lay it very cautiously into the truck. Or I can say, oh, I, I saw you pack this box. There's just a bunch of towels in it. And I can throw it into the truck disregarding the sign. Not realizing you had put your china at the bottom of the box, which I now broke because I just threw it into the truck. And so your response is to a fragile sign is either you have to treat it very cautiously or you need to disregard the sign and intentionally break it. And so I don't find either of those very helpful. And so in most racial dialogues today, white people are classified in one of two categories, which is either they're racist or they're fragile. So if white people are racist, if you're racist just because you lack pigmentation in your skin, that means every time we have a disagreement, I have to take that as a confrontation and either I have to confront back or I have to defend myself. That's not healthy. That's not helpful. If white people are fragile, it means anytime something comes up that's uncomfortable, I either have to soothe it over or intentionally break it. That's not necessarily helpful either. I like the paradigm of trauma because when you understand this paradigm, you know, when you're traumatized, the first symptom of trauma is shock and denial. And so usually it's your friends, your neighbors, your family members who know you're traumatized before you do, and maybe they can talk you into going to see a psychologist. Now, if you go into a psychologist and you're, you, you think you're traumatized, but you're not aware of it, your psychologist is going to ask you a bunch of questions and explore things conversationally because they're looking for what's called a trigger. Trigger is a sight, a sound, a smell, something that connects you back into your trauma. You know, there's a disconnect between your psyche and your reality and the trigger triggers it. So if, if you're traumatized and you're in your psychologist's office and they're exploring what your triggers are, so they have something to talk about and address, and you're sitting there and suddenly a swarm of butterflies flies by the window, and for whatever reason, butterflies are your trigger. So you jump up and start screaming. You, you get tense. Your drone starts flowing. You get unresponsive. Your psychologist is going to let, if they're worth their salt, they're going to let you have your little episode. Right? They'll keep themselves safe and make sure you're safe, but they'll let you have your reaction. And then after that, whether it's that same session or your next session, you better believe the first question out of their mouth is going to be, so let's talk about butterflies. Why? Because there's a disconnect between your psyche and your reality. And for whatever reason, butterflies connects it and elicits a response. So they have to explore butterflies. What is it about the butterfly that's triggering this reaction in you? So when we treat white people as either racist or fragile, and we either confront their episodes 
or we soothe them over, we never get to the heart of the matter. By understanding white people are traumatized, yes, let them have their episode, make sure you're safe, keep them safe. But then when it's over, let's go back and talk about it. Let's have a discussion. Why did this topic, why did this lecture, what about this was so challenging to you? And so again, what was the demographic that was most likely to stand up and disrupt my lecture? It was white Christian military veterans. Why? Because our nation believes in this heresy of Christian empire, right? We even talk about enslavement of Africans as in the terms of, of that mentality where that's our original sin. Now, a sin is a breaking of a divine law. So it means we, have a, we, have, we, we should have a common understanding of a divine law that therefore slavery was a breaking of that. Again, so if you have people, a pluralistic society, people from different religions, you now have one religious understanding, one theological understanding that you're legislating. That's why you would refer to it at a national level as a sin. And that's what the U.S. does. This is why, you know, so, so we talk about the United States of America as a Christian nation that has a manifest destiny, God's permission to rule this continent from sea to shining sea. And I address that in our book. And so, and so when you have this understanding that you are exceptional as an American, especially as a white American, because you have a special relationship with the God of Abraham, and he's actually given you a manifest destiny, which if you read the book of Deuteronomy and Joshua, it's permission to commit genocide. And so you've been fighting your whole life, believing that your nation is the good nation that not only is more moral, but was chosen by God and has permission to judge other nations through killing them. If that's your worldview, and so you sign up to serve in the military without having any sort of a moral quandary, even though you know you're going to be killing people in other nations and in other states. But because you believe that you are on not just the right side, but on God's side, this now excuses all the lives you're taking, right? So if suddenly someone gives you a lecture that pretty definitively demonstrates that not only is your nation not Christian, but it's not even just, which now means you have been serving and enacting and even killing on behalf of a very white supremacist colonial nation that has very little regard for human life. And that causes huge psychological problems because now this violence that you've actually been participating in is now something that you might actually hold some moral complicity or even some accountability for. And that is why I, I think I saw a large, the most likely group of people to stand up and call me a liar was white Christian military veterans because it's, they have one of two choices at that moment. Either I'm a liar or they're a murderer. That's the binary. Because, they're, they're, because they've been triggered by me and my lecture and they're now operating in a fight or flight mode and their, their adrenaline's flowing and they're, they're thinking solely of self-preservation. They have a simple binary that exists, which says either Mark's a liar or I'm a murderer. And it's much easier to stand up and publicly call me a liar than to wrestle with the, the implications of I might have been engaging in unjust actions on behalf of a nation that isn't Christian. I, I can see how that could be pretty confronting. I'm still wondering why that person would have come to your lecture. But, <laughs> but at the same time, I believe that we all have something inside us that's guiding us Right. And whether they know it or not, or whatever their stated motive, you know, I think we're all looking to heal 
and we all yeah. want to connect and we all want to be loved and we all want to contribute. So, and again, the, the first is painful. symptom of trauma is shock and denial. So I would argue that most of white America is in a deep, deep, deep state of denial. The fact that people in the computer age we have today with the vast amount of information at our fingertips, the fact that white Americans do not know the genocidal white supremacist history that they are standing on, that is a willful ignorance. That's not, I wasn't taught this in school. No, that information is available out there. The fact that that is not something we are seeking out and understanding, that is now a willful ignorance. Not, they're not victims of anything. They are willfully choosing to not look at a certain direction, not ask certain questions, and not research certain topics. Yeah, that makes sense. That that makes perfect sense to me. And and two things come up for me when I hear you say that. First of all, Mark, there are so many choices on Netflix. I mean, do you know how many series I haven't watched yet? So, you know, just being facetious there that I realize, you know, many people and myself included sometimes maybe more more than a little bit are more concerned with their own comfort and not looking at some of these unpleasant truths. Right. That's one. And, and the other thing, though, and I am really interested to get your view on this, is that, you know, on the Internet, I'm often you know, reminded that we can find evidence or proof for anything. We went to the moon. The Holocaust didn't happen. The earth is flat. So in some way, can people be forgiven for not seeking out, you know, the truth of every last thing? Because we can find the pros and cons, the, the truth and the disapproval of anything you know, and, and I agree with you because I read Howard Zinn's The People's History of the United States, and I learned some things I didn't know, like the fact that the United States government broke treaties literally within 24 hours of signing them with, you know, indigenous people. I'm like, I didn't know that. So can people, but can people be forgiven because, man, there, there is so much information, maybe too much, you know, to go learn their own history. What, how do you, how do you look at that? Again, I'm not looking at this issue of forgiveness, but the whole goal of writing the book and even of running for president, I mean, not the whole goal because I truly believe I'm the best person to be president right now in this point in our history. I'm not running a protest campaign, but I am trying to engage our country in a dialogue it does not want to talk about. Yeah. And so when you look at the history, when you look at my campaign, and this has been one of the most challenging things about our campaign is we are literally ignored. We've been written out of stories by the press. We've been ignored by other candidates. I mean, it is intentional the way that the media and the public is choosing not to engage with my campaign. That's not, it's not just, oh, there's too much information. No, people are literally making choices. I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to listen to that. I'm not going to write about that. I'm not going to cover that. I'm not going to include him. Even events we've attended with other candidates, we've been written out of those events in news stories. And so this is where I call it a willful ignorance. And our nation does not want to talk about these things. It doesn't want, you know, so many people say, well, I never knew that Native history was so bad because I've never had to deal with Native Americans. And I say, yeah, that was by design. Your country was constructed intentionally to marginalize Native peoples out of sight, out of mind, so you would never have to ask who was ethically cleansed from the land where my house now sits. That was an intentional choice your nation made as it established itself. 
because it did not want to deal with the implications of those of those types of questions. And so so this is where I'm I'm I at some point I have enough stories to fill several books with how absolutely adamant the nation is it does not want to talk about these things that we're trying to bring up not only in my book but in our campaign. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. And you know, I like to think of myself as open-minded and when I read when I read Unsettling Truths, you said some things that I can see how they could be very confronting for people. Right? Like this statement here that ends chapter 10, the final paragraph where you say and it's a lot of what you've just said now, but the way it's worded is very succinct and so forth about the United States of America does not hold a morally exceptional position greater than Nazi Germany. We are not more just. Our sense of equality is not any superior. Our nation has never been Christian. We have just won our wars. And therefore, for centuries, we wrote our own history. And that has proven to be incredibly dangerous. Like yeah. I can see how people could be triggered by that or find some fault with that, no doubt. Yeah. And at the same time, I I believe I see exactly what you're saying. Yeah, that that ending comes at the end of our section on Abraham Lincoln. And once you look at the policies, the statements, the writings, and the legacy of Lincoln, it is so obvious. And when I, when I lecture on this, the first question I ask my, my audience is I say, let's pretend for a moment that Nazi Germany won World War II. Let's just pretend, okay? How do you think their history books would record the legacy of Adolf Hitler? There'd be a lot of statues. Well, he'd be their greatest day, and they lost war. Imagine if they won. We won Holocaust. There was no Holocaust. Yeah. This is exactly what we've done with Lincoln. This is exactly what we've done with Abraham Lincoln. Right. And it's what we do with any leader who is the leader of the side that won, right? One of the, the we start that section by telling people that because the history is written by the victors and the United States of America has never lost a war that matters. When you lose a war, you, you give up lands, you give up un, unearned fruits, you have a regime change, you, you get disarmed, you have mm -hmm. consequences. We have never lost a major war. The Korean War technically isn't over. We pulled out of Vietnam and, and lost some pride, but not a whole lot else. And every other major battle we've been in, we've won. And so it means for 250 years, we've been able to construct a mythology that is not even close to being rooted in reality. And Abraham Lincoln is one of the prime examples of that. And so, yeah, this is, this is the challenge we face is we've been writing our own history and believing our own mythologies for 250 years. And it's so blatantly obvious to everyone except ourselves that yeah. we're clueless. Well, one thing is maybe a bit of a direction change in the conversation, but I definitely wanted to be sure to ask you about it is the fact that, I mean, come on, Mark, the United States has already apologized. It was in a Department of Defense Appropriations Act. I mean, what more does the U.S. need to do? <laughs> right. Will you talk about that? So on December 19, 2009, Congress passed House Resolution 3326. It was the 2010 Department of Defense Appropriations Act. It's a 67-page bill laying out the appropriation for the DOD of 2010. Page 45, subsection 8113 is titled Apology to Native Peoples of the United States. What follows is a seven-bullet-point apology. It mentions no specific tribe, no specific treaty, no specific injustice. It basically says you had some nice land, 
our citizens didn't take it very politely. Let's now call all of our land and we'll steward it together. And then it ends with a disclaimer saying nothing in here is legally binding. That bill was, it was a House bill that section, actually it was before that, Sam Brownback, who was the, the senator from Kansas, he had wanted to do an apology and he worked for a while to write a more robust apology and he couldn't get it out of committee. So he watered it down, watered it down, watered it down until eventually he got to the toothless version that exists today and he still couldn't move it. And then he remembered that, again, politics, the way it works is most favorable things get stuck into appropriations bills because it's hard to veto them. It's you kind of have to pass them. And so he stuck it in the appropriations bill where it passed. Now, it was, it was a House bill that he amended in the Senate, but because there was no money tied to it, it didn't have to go back to the House for full support. It just, it got approved in committee. And so he tucked it into this appropriations bill and it went to President Obama's desk on December 19, 2009. Now, President Obama had planned to have a very open public signing of this bill. I was told by people who were there that they were sitting in, in the press room waiting for him to come out and sign the bill and talk about it. And uh, 15, 20 minutes before the signing, they kicked everyone out of the room and he signed it behind closed doors. They released a press release about it later. It talked about the bill. It talked about, you know, some of the, the appropriations that were made. It made no mention of the apology. And it's such a random place to put an apology anyway. And it's such a watered down apology. I, I found that apology by accident three, two years later. December 19, 2011, I wrote an op-ed that I published in a native, on a blog, and I, it was during the election in 2011, the campaigns in 2011, and I was addressing to something Governor Romney said, actually from Utah, when he said that as, as president, he would never apologize on behalf of the United States. And I basically said, you know, Governor Romney, you... Your bio says that you're a loving husband, a caring father, a successful businessman. I'm sure in these scenarios, you've learned the value of a well-timed and sincere apology. It makes no sense to me that you would campaign for the most re complex relational office in the world. And one of your assets that you, would, you claim is you will never apologize. I mean, I'm thinking you would never go into business with someone who said, I'm never going to apologize. You wouldn't marry someone who said, I'm never going to apologize. Why would we want a president who's never going to apologize? And then I listed several spaces, several instances where it would be appropriate for the U.S. president to apologize, including for broken treaties and stolen lands. And I published that op-ed on my, it was actually a blog article, I think. Maybe it was an op-ed, might've been both on December 19, 2011, two years after the, I didn't know about the apology when it came out. Someone commented on the apology and said, why is this author asking for an apology? Doesn't he know we've already given one? Now I thought they were talking about the apology that Canada gave to their indigenous peoples for their residential boarding schools. This was just before the TRC started in Canada. And so I just dismissed the comment. I'm like, the guy doesn't know. He confused US and Canadian politics. He doesn't understand. I just dismissed it, didn't even comment on it. And then a few hours later, someone else commented and said, well, of course, this uh, author knows about the apology because, look, he published his piece on the second anniversary of the signing wow. of the bill. I'm like, what? So I Googled U.S. Congress Apology to Native Peoples, December 19, 2009, and I found an article published by someone working out of Harvard. It was titled, A Tree Fell in the Forest. The U.S. Apologized to Native Peoples and No One Heard a Sound. 
It gave the bill. It gave the, the location of it. I looked it up online, and sure enough, subsection 8113, I read the apology, and I was appalled. I'm a fairly well-read, engaged Native person. I had no clue this existed. I was living on the reservation at the time. My neighbors were rug weavers and shepherds, boarding school survivors. If I didn't know about this apology, how were they ever going to know about it? And so I, I committed at that moment to publicly reading it. And so on December 19, 2012, I hosted a public reading of that apology in front of the Capitol building. We invited members of the Senate and of the Congress. We invited President Obama. We invited religious leaders, business leaders, educators. The only people who came to this reading of the apology was people from the margins, people from the grassroots. No national leaders, no Congress representation. I got a letter from the White House saying, President Obama nor any of his staff would not be there. I never even heard back from the senators and Congress members I invited to come. We had the apology translated into Ojibwe and into Navajo, and we read it in those languages because I wanted to demonstrate for our nation, if you want to apologize, you do it in the way that's most access accessible to the people sure. you're apologizing that makes to. Sense. So we translated into the native languages. And afterwards, we gave people there, again, again people from the grassroots, native peoples who were there, the chance to respond. And afterwards, I waited for the, for the last minute. I wanted someone from the government to come and take ownership of the apology and nobody showed up. No one, very few press even showed up. We sent out press releases, we made announcements, we had it on Facebook, we were streaming it live actually. And finally I went up and I said, not out of anger, out of bitterness, but out of respect. I want to encourage Native peoples to not accept this apology. We deserve better, and our nation can do better. You know, this apology is like if, if your child gave an apology like this to someone they offended, you as a parent would turn them around and say, you know, you go back and apologize again, and this time <laughs> yeah. you mean it, and be sincere about it. You know, this was a meaningless apology that was self-protecting. And so, yeah, that was, and that was one of the first experiences I had where I realized the nation doesn't want to engage in this type of dialogue. I thought for sure publicizing a congressional apology to Native peoples for history of genocide and ethnic cleansing would be a news item. We had one interview on CNN, not even the day of the event. They, they published an article that day, but they didn't even come to the event. It was, it was only the grassroots who showed up. And so, yeah, this, when I talk about the fact that our nation is willfully ignorant, that's part of the understanding I have of that, because the nation chose, we sent out press releases, we invited people to come, we sent letters, we went to personally invite people, and they chose not wow. to come. Yeah, I can see that. Well, thank you for relating that. I think that many people are not aware you know, and at the same time, what I take from that is I, I'm hopeful that there, are, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about government, we'll talk about the nation. And ultimately, as we know, this is really what we're talking about as a group of individuals. And just like, you know, Senator Brownback, there are individuals, it seems who are attempting to initiate or advance some kind of a dialogue and everything starts somewhere. So while it certainly lands as an empty or meaningless you know, effort. My hope is that people are waking up, people are becoming aware and they're taking, they're taking some kind of action. Yeah, this is, and this is one of the things that gives me hope even about our campaign as well. We have not received much national attention. 
And while I'm not even surprised that the national press and the Democrats and Republicans are barely acknowledging our campaign even exists, but we are getting a lot of support from the grassroots. Our campaign is making a lot of, of waves on social media, and especially as we've been going through some of the racial tension that we've been having after the murder, I, I actually called the lynching of George Floyd by the police department. You know, our campaign has been, has been gaining a lot of momentum. You know, our, our campaign video, which we used to announce my campaign the end of May 2019, Daily, it's getting hundreds of views, um, even more. And I'm getting messages frequently from people who are watching it. And it's so appropriate for what we're wrestling with today. And people are telling me I've been feeling so despondent and hopeless. You know, we have a very divisive candidate on one end and we have a very uninspiring candidate on the other end. And your vision, your honesty, your truth telling, even in your video, gives me hope again for our politics. And so I'm very excited. We, we were, I'm very excited for the next five months of the campaign. As we continue to not only do this campaign and engage with these issues, but as we do it virtually, you know, and we are in stark contrast to both the, the Trump and the Biden campaigns that are both trying to press for public campaigning again in the midst of a pandemic. You know, Trump is being more explicit about it and he's holding large rallies, completely disregarding the life of his supporters and of the American people. But Biden's cautiously following behind him. You know, he just committed yesterday that he will accept the nomination in person in Wisconsin. It'll be a smaller, hopefully a bit safer, but it's still going to be a public campaigning event. And one of the things that we're saying as, as a campaign is, you know, while we, we are in the midst of a global pandemic, there's no vaccine. And one of the arguments I'm making as to why is our nation opening up, even though our numbers are spiking. In fact, we had a, a higher infection rate yesterday than we had in any of the days in April when we were at our peak. Why are we opening up still? Well, we're opening up still because we now have definitive data that more black and indigenous people are dying of COVID-19 than white people. And the U.S., does not value black and indigenous lives. When you look at the opioid epidemic, when more black and indigenous peoples were dying, people of color were dying from opioid overdoses, we criminalized drug use and filled our prisons. In the early 2000s, when the rate of white people dying from opioid addiction skyrocketed and far surpassed the rate of people of color, this is when we turned it into a public health crisis and began finding ways to treat it. It wasn't until more white people started dying that we actually treated it as the health crisis that it is instead of the criminal justice crisis we made it to be. And so nobody should be surprised that in the midst of a global pandemic, the United States is opening up its states. And it's because the majority of people dying, the highest rates of death from COVID-19 is not white people. It's black and indigenous people. And our country just doesn't value our lives. Yeah, I can see that. Mark, what what haven't we touched on? What haven't we talked about that feels like it might serve the listener or it's just something you want to say before we transition our conversation? So one of the things that our campaign's been talking about, you know, and we deal with a lot of foundational level issues. And even in our book, we deal with a lot of foundational level issues. And we we have a plan. We released the plan. It's called our first 100 days plan. 
because people hear me talk and they're like, how are you going to make that happen? Like, you know, this is, this is a, your vision is something that the two parties are telling us we'll get there in a hundred years. You know, how are you running for office? And so we released a plan. It's called our 100 day plan where we are, we are demonstrating, we are showing people how we intend to enact these changes within the first 100 days in office. So I, I have a proposal where I, I've, most Americans have never read the Constitution cover to cover. Most Americans don't know what it actually says. But when you actually read it, and I, I, I challenge people, I say, if you really think the United States Constitution was written to protect everybody, get on a Zoom call with women, African Americans, and Native peoples, and read the Constitution out loud. You'll be appalled at how exclusive white supremacist, racist, and sexist this document is. And when I first, I, it was a few years ago when I read the Constitution cover to cover, and I was so appalled as I was reading it, I, I put it onto my computer, I copied the text and put it on my computer, and I began going through it with a strike-through font. I didn't change balance of powers, I didn't change checks and balances, I merely went through and every time there was a racist, a sexist, or a white supremacist word or statement, I just put a strike-through font through it. So there are 51 gender-specific male pronouns in the Constitution. There's not a single female pronoun in the entire document. So every time I had a he, him, or his, I replaced it with a they, them, or theirs, or a proper noun. But Mark, that's not grammatically correct. <laughs> every time we had an exclusion of excluding natives, our only males, our Africans are three-fifths, I put a strike through font through that. The 13th Amendment that has a clause wherein it says neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party has been duly convicted shall exist within the United States. So the clause keeps it legal in prison. So I put a strike through font through the clause. So the 13th Amendment only reads neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist in the United States, period. And I simply remove the racism, the sexism, and the white supremacist language out of the Constitution. And I am proposing that we not amend it, but we edit it, right? This is not some sacred divine text given to us by the gods. No, this was some ideas, some of them stolen from Native peoples, written down from some pretty sexist, racist, and white supremacist white men who set up an institution to protect and enrich themselves. And now it's 250 years later, and we still haven't edited it. There's not a single corporation today operating off of bylaws written in the language of the 1700s. But we have a constitution that does exactly that. And so I'm saying we have to update this thing. We have to edit it. And so what's funny is if you actually read the document, again, I'm not making foundational level changes. I'm actually having the document read so it says what most people actually think it says in the first place. Most people don't know we didn't abolish slavery. Most people don't know we have sexist language in there. And so this proposal is almost impossible to argue against, right? The only way you can say, no, we have to keep it is if you want to make a racist, a sexist, or a white supremacist argument. Now, again, we live in a democracy. You're welcome to disagree with me. You're welcome to argue against me. I think the people who will make those arguments will find how much of a minority they actually are in when they make these racist and sexist and white supremacist arguments to keep that language. And not that just changing this language is going to change things overnight. But right now, we're having a huge debate on criminal justice yeah. and policing reforms. We're talking about things from banning certain chokeholds. Joe Biden said we should shoot people in the knees instead of in the chest. 
We're even having discussions on do we want to fund the police, which is not is about how do we rethink the entire structure of policing. And one of the things I've been saying over and over during this period is that, yes, we have to reform our criminal justice system and our policing. But if your proposals do not start with constitutionally abolishing slavery and removing this institutionalized white supremacy and this protection for this institution known as slavery in our constitution, your reforms are not going to go anywhere. Simply banning a chokehold is not going to change the foundation that this yeah. law is written in. And so, and so again, what I'm, and this is embarrassing that I'm a United States citizen in the 21st century running for president. And one of the key planks of my platform is I want to abolish slavery. It's an embarrassment that I live in a country that still has a, a legal constitutional protection for white supremacy and slavery. And so again, these changes are not radical. In fact, I would argue they're benign, but what they will do is they will give us a foundation so we actually now can write equitable laws and we can write understanding that we the people actually includes all the people. You know, we, and we don't, need to, we don't need to have an amendment saying, oh, we also meant to include women, we also meant to include, but no, we can just say, no, this thing is written. We've taken out all the language that makes a preference for white landowning heterosexual Christian men. And now we can apply these rules much more easily to everybody. And now when you read it, the problem with an amendment is you still have to read through this white supremacist, racist, and sexist document to get to the end and say, oh, we actually, when we said this, we meant that. Now we can actually read it and we don't have to digest all that racism, sexism, and white supremacy in the first place. And so that's our first 100-day plan. And if I think we can get it passed, and once we do, then we can actually start having a very robust debate about how do we actually now govern? How can we actually begin to reform our criminal justice system? How can we actually begin to make healthcare a right instead of a privilege? How can we actually begin to talk about gun control in a meaningful way that doesn't preference or serve a preference for white landowning males? How can we have these more robust debates? And I propose one amendment to the constitution, and this is just in the first round, one amendment. If you read the entire constitution, there's nothing in there that states we have a collective value for life. And if you understand the doctrine of discovering its influence, the implicit bias of the constitution is that we have a value for exploitation and profit. This is why a corporation can be sued for not maximizing the profits of its shareholders, but we have to write specific laws to get them to not destroy the environment. Again, this is, this is the implicit bias of the constitution. And so in the preamble, two words, value life. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, value life. There's two words. I didn't define what life was. I didn't say how we had to value it. But if we in the 21st century as a nation cannot agree that at some level we have a collective value for life, then we, we might as well just give up right now. This environment is going to go over the edge soon. It's going to go over a cliff soon. This income inequality is going to get to such a level that it's going to literally result in, in unbelievable oppression of people from the margins. If we can't agree as a nation that we have a collective value for life, then we might as well just throw in the towel right now because we're not going to survive very long, environmentally, relationally, even as part of a global community. And so I, I want to have that. And will this make our passing of laws more complex and more disorientating? Yes. 
Will it make our debates more robust? Absolutely. But we need to have those debates. We need to have that discussion. We need to have an understanding that the way we live and who we are and the way we interact has to reflect the value for life. If we are merely about Americans first and exploiting the environment and people and those around us, then yeah, we're, what we're doing is not sustainable. Yeah. So that's my one amendment I would add to there. And I think we can pass it within the first 100 days so we can actually get to really governing and having the debate that we need to have. But first we have to agree that we the people includes everybody and we have a collective value for life. This would be a very different nation for those things were, were so today. And I think it's a really beautiful vision. And we could have it. You could pay your taxes. You could pay your taxes in 2021, knowing that you were giving your money to a government that for its very first time included everybody. Imagine that. It's possible. It's within our grasp to do that. That's, that's a really, it's a beautiful it's a beautiful possibility, and, and I'm grateful to you for, for speaking about it, for writing about it, for being a stand for that, and moving us closer to, to when that is our reality. So thank you. Yeah. Well, Mark, yeah. with that, as I paced us through this interview, I felt like the, the ideas and the thoughts that you were sharing were more valuable than what I often include in the enlightening lightning round and the, and the writing. So I know there's so much more we could talk about, and I know that we're out of time for, at least for this conversation. So I, I just want to conclude by, again, expressing my gratitude to you for making so much time with me. I know, I know you're very busy. And by the way, one thing that I've done to attempt to express my gratitude is I have, I've made a microloan on your behalf. I've made a $100 microloan to a female entrepreneur who she's from Colombia, but she's here in the United States and she will use this money. Uh, she's a single mother, but she's, a, as I mentioned, an entrepreneur and she'll use this money to grow. She actually sells handbags, so clothing. So thank you for giving me a reason to make that, that microloan. And thank you for being here. And just the final, what, what final thoughts or instructions or invitation would you leave people listening with? Yeah. In his last State of the Union, President Obama was talking about the need for our nation to have a new politics. He was acknowledging the divisiveness that had boiled to the forefront throughout his entire eight years in office. And in his, in his exhortation to us as a nation, he quoted the Constitution. He said, we the people. Our constitution begins with these three simple words. Words we've come to recognize mean all the people. Now that sounded beautiful and he got a lot of applause for that line. But as I heard him speak, as I listened to him speak, I said, when, when did we make this decision? The founding fathers did not believe we the people meant all the people. Abraham Lincoln did not believe we the people meant all the people. As good as the civil rights movement was, it did not get us to we the people meaning all the people. President Obama, our President Trump, does not believe we the people means all the people. The challenge is, is we've never decided that we want to be a nation where we the people now includes everybody. And so my campaign is calling the question. I'm asking Americans, do you want to live in a nation where we the people includes everybody? If your answer is yes, join our campaign. Help us remove the racism, the sexism, the white supremacy from our foundation so we can actually write just laws and equitable laws. On the website, we're markcharles2020.com, and you can, you can make a donation, you can, you can get on our mailing list, you can sign up to volunteer, you can read about our policies, you can watch our videos. 
we are, I'm treating this campaign. When I made my announcement video, I said, I want to take you on an 18 month journey. We have five months left in this journey. I don't need you to vote for me today. I don't need you to vote for me until November 3rd. And so join the conversation, follow my campaign, follow me on social media, engage with the content I'm putting out. And in the first week of November, make your decision. Do I want this guy to be president? Do I want to live in a nation where we the people truly means all the people? Thank you for letting me be with you today. It's been an honor to be with you and I'm looking forward to having some more conversation in the future. Yes, me too. Thank you, Mark. And, and good luck with your campaign. Thank you. Yeah. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com. 